It's a privilege to be here. But here's, the, here's a word from Jesus. He says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And that's true, isn't it? And that's what we're sensing in that, that little bit of chatter, that the Lord really dwells among a people, that he really teaches us to, to forgive, to live mercifully, to hope for another's gain. All these are gifts from the Lord, and they're experienced in the Spirit. Well, um, let me introduce myself a, a second time. Uh, my name's Dale Hollenbeck, and I do serve in Global Mission. My background, and, and you might pick up on it at some point from my emphasis in missions in this sermon, is as a missionary. I, um, my wife is Kathy, and we have three sons total, uh, though our youngest is here, Zach. And we worked in Uganda, East Africa. We were there for 11 years, not straight, but over from the beginning to the end, uh, 10 and a half or so, 11 years. And uh, we're, we're here, and I have the privilege of working to help the church in the United States see itself as a missionary community, a community that crosses barriers and then reaches out, that, that sees the tools that the Lord has given us in fellowship, as we just enjoyed, but also in story, in song, in, in sharing in the needs and sufferings of other people. So all these things come together. This is part of um, the, the, the water I've been swimming in and, and enjoying for years. And then I'd also like to just share the scripture. And so with that in mind, let's take a minute and look at the Bible together. We'll look at uh, Exodus chapter 34. This is no small passage in the Bible. In fact, if, if I could name preeminent parts of Scripture, this would be one of the, right up there with the giving of the Ten Commandments. This would be right up there with uh, the Sermon on the Mount. As the name of the Lord is declared, this becomes an anchor or a, a, a plumb line for helping us understand who this Lord is that we walk with. Exodus 34, verses 5 through 9. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, that being Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, thank you that you have come and made yourself known, but thank you as well for your great mercy. We have seen this in the past. We've relished in it already this morning. We count upon it as we have confidence in the future. We hope in you, O oh Lord. But now I pray, help us to savor just this bit. Help us to know your name, to hope in you, to know your character, and to live into your story. Lord, we count upon you for our transformation. Bless us in your spirit, we pray. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.
Jonathan Edwards said, glory is the display of the beauty of the character of God. But the glory of character and the outworking of God's virtues are often more subtle because they're hidden in a story, in a sense. They can be right before us. We can even participate in a story and completely miss the story itself. That's why people could be healed by Jesus and not give thanks. We read passages of scripture like the earth is filled with the glory of God and sometimes we're wondering, wait, where, when? What's that glory look like? Because we don't know what we're looking for. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture and I'd like to hold it up to you, but let me go a roundabout way in getting there, following the footsteps of Moses. This is a rock-solid truth for the Christian community to build itself upon. And at the same time, we're living in a day with a lot of turmoil. I mean, I, just looking at the news recently, it's at the steps of the Supreme Court. But over the last year or two, you can look back at the, the riots of over a million in Hong Kong, the troubles in Venezuela, troubles in Lebanon, France, Iran, Iraq, now, more recently, Ukraine and Russia, civil wars ravaging across North Africa and Syria, separatist movements, even in countries like Spain and Scotland. And in all this, that we are swimming, that we're seeing this left and right, in all this, I want to remind you that there is a plumb line, there's an anchor, there's a solid foundation, a bedrock that we can have our feet stand firm upon as individuals, but as a community as well. Remind us that the Lord is on the throne and that he has a purpose for this age. We're going to look at three things in this passage. We're going to look at three things in the Bible this morning. The mystery that drives us, the nature of the glory, and the display of his glory. So three things. The mystery that drives us the nature of the glory, and the display of his glory. So let's look first at the mystery that drives us. And what I want you to capture with the word mystery, our, our, our culture doesn't help us so much with this idea of mystery. So in our culture, mystery is talking about that which can't be solved. You know, it's, it's, you're going to meet a dead end, you're going to try as hard as you want, and it'll never come to understanding in a useful sort of way. That is not what the Bible is talking about when it's describing a mystery. Let me bring in an, another idea, hold on to that, bring in another idea of wonder. You see, this mystery that we have in the Bible takes us through this growth of wonder. Now, wonder has to grow in order for it to be sustainable. Just for example... Picture the sense of wonder that a, will captivate a three-year-old. All you have to say is the word ice cream and big eyes and a smile. And I mean, they're captivated. Okay, but let it get a little bit older, 10 or so. And then you can talk about the dragon behind the door, right? And, and that engages their imagination just a little bit more. You get to a young teen, maybe 13, 14-year-old boy. And they can handle the wonder that comes from Tolkien in The Hobbit, his description of smog, for example. 
My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are like swords. My claws, spears. The shock of my tail, a thunderbolt. My wings, a hurricane. You see, the wonder grows with the experience. The wonder grows as we unfold a mystery. And us as believers, it's not just like the the three and the 10 and the 13-year-old boy, but we as believers have to have this sense of this growing wonder of the living God. What would captivate your wonder? What wonder would give your life more joy, more passion? Make your, your, your fist come on the table and say, something must be done. What about the Lord would bring that to you? Well, God led Moses on this journey of mystery that took him through this discovery of wonder. The wonder of who the living God is. Our story begins in Exodus chapter 3. There, Moses is leading his flock for his father-in-law Jethro along the west side of the wilderness. An angel of the Lord appeared to him out of the flame of fire in the midst of the bush. Moses looked at the bush and behold, the scriptures tell us, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses, now capture this, Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, think wonder, why the bush is not consumed. You see, the question is kind of twofold. How can fire be on the bush and the bush not be consumed? Now, my mind has been captivated with the, the pictures on the news of the fire. You know that fire consumes where it goes. How can the bush not be consumed? That's a three-year-old version of this mystery of God. That story develops in the book of Exodus. Let me fast forward you through quite a few stories to another prominent story that you know of fire, where fire is actually upon the people of God, where the Hebrews are leaving out of Egypt and God leads them with the fire and the cloud of pillar by day, or the, the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. And you know, as the nations are watching them, they're asking the same question as Moses. How can fire be among the people and the people not be consumed? After the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, we see a, another step in the wonder, another step in the mystery, a signpost saying, this is the way. When it says there, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Do you hear the echo of Moses' question? How can fire be on this mountain? How can the lightning strike and we not be consumed? Moses, you, you go listen to God and tell us what he says. And this was God's work of teaching them that they needed a redeemer to point them to who would come in Jesus. Let me fast forward you to another story, the story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. Aaron. 
Here, these sons of the priest, Aaron, were offering a sacrifice. Again, Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, it says, offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You know, the people of Israel saw this, and they asked the question, if our priests aren't safe, if the son of Aaron isn't safe, how can we be safe? The sons of the priests would have seen if even the sons of Aaron were consumed by God's fire, will dad come back tomorrow? Let me fast forward. Same storyline, same mystery. These are signposts to guide God's people along this mystery to grow our sense of wonder. Let me take you to the books of Acts, the book of Acts and the story of Pentecost. You see the Spirit descending upon the gathered disciples and a flame of fire rested upon each of them. And the invitation to peer into the mystery of God comes again. The nations were there in Jerusalem. Jews from all around the world were gathered and they saw this event and they heard the rushing wind. Again, the question is, how can fire be among God's people and the people not be consumed? You see, God is setting a mystery to lead us on, to cultivate our faith, to sanctify our imagination, to elicit us forward into a deep relationship with him. But it's not a mystery, again, without an answer. It's not like the carrot being dangled out in front of the donkey to keep it going that never gets to enjoy it offers you a taste in the moment, you're satisfied, and then you want more, and you grow more, and that sense of wonder grows. It's a sort of mystery that leads us into a journey, and it leads you to appreciate the character of God. We're drawn to him, the living God. Let me remind you, what we know of God is displayed in mission. That our God is on a mission to us, He's on a mission to redeem people from every nation, tribe, language, every people group. Our God is a missionary God. We have seen this God come toward us. And that living God is still among us, and it's still marvelous how he can be among us and we are not consumed. What is calling us to do in mission, it's to care for and to engage, to be present and be bold and courageous even to the point of our suffering. And all of a sudden, I'm butting up against our second point. What is the content of this mystery? What is this glory that we're looking at? How do we describe the glory of God? Is it in the sparklers and rainbows, the thunderbolts coming out of the golden throne? Is there anything more we can say about it? One key passage for us to understand this comes out of Exodus again, but a fuller story than the passage we looked at. Our story actually begins in chapter 32 with the golden calf. While Moses was up on the mountain, the Hebrews started to feel lost. They wondered where Moses was. So they said to Aaron, up, make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man of 
who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Now, it doesn't say the word consumed, but I can't help but think as they were looking at the fire and seeing the, the thunderbolts and the, the presence, the theophany of God upon the mountain, I can't help but think that they asked themselves the same question of Moses. How can a man be in the presence of the fire of God and still live? They just answered it the wrong way. It's impossible. And so Aaron told them to take off the rings of gold that were on their ears and fashioned it into a golden calf. This golden calf came out. The people began to party. It was a, such a party. And God, seeing the disobedience, pulled Moses down and showed him what was going on. God, if you remember, said, I will wipe out this people and start a new covenant people with you, Moses. Moses could have said, that's a good idea. I know how to lead this group. It would have been easier for him. Instead, though, Moses played the role like Christ and prayed for mercy, prayed for his people. God says, I will relent and you can go forward. But I can't go with you, Moses. I can't go with these people. If I'm with them, then I will consume them. That's the word. This is a biblical theology. That's the word. He's saying, I can't go with you because I know your disobedience. And in your disobedience, I'll have to bring judgment. Moses prays, oh Lord, what will make us different from any other people in the in among the nations? The one thing that sets us apart is that you're with us. And God relents. And when the Lord says, I will go with you, now lead the people. That's the very moment where Moses says, show me your glory. Do you see? It's like lining up the thread into the needle. It's that, that need, that question, that wonder of Moses. How can a holy God be among an unholy people and the unholy people still survive? Lord, show me your glory. At that moment, God says, I will show you my glory. And he hit him in the cleft of the rock and he passed by with this incredible pervasive, overwhelming light. And just this little glimpse of it on the backside, Moses is able to see the glory of God. Now, this is what I want you to catch, though. What if I could take that overwhelming, just it feels like a blob as I have it in my mind. Like, what, what is this glory? Okay, it's overwhelming. Well, what else is it? It's bright. You see, I'm at a lack of words. Guess what the Lord does? He takes that same bit of glory and he packages it differently for us. He puts it into words. Those words are his name. Let me read this again. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Did you catch that? At the very moment the Lord showed his overwhelming glory, he put words in his name. Now, 
Those who maybe have looked at the Bible in the past and learned about the difference of, of Hebrew names, names have everything to do with character, roles. So Jacob, one who grabs by the heel, right, that shows his role in the story. Abraham, father of many nations, shows his role in the story. Here, God is showing his role in the story. He's showing his character. He's describing his virtues. And so, Jonathan Edwards' quote makes sense. That glory of the living God is displayed in the character of God. Don't just stop there. He also tells it in a story form. You see, each one of these, forgiving you see, there's, it takes time to do that. It takes, you have to have an offense in order for there to be forgiveness. Do you see what I'm saying? So listen to this name again. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. All of these are story words. They take process to work out. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's speaking of generations. Lots and lots of people over a long time. This is a story. Do you see it heap up? And then there's a but. Who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And what I want to point out here is that this character of God, this story of God, isn't just in a, a, a polarization, you have the mercy over here and then you have the justice and let's keep them in balance. Or maybe a more sophisticated person will say, we well, keep them in tension. No, 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 no. It's a dynamic where the two press together and when they do, here's, here's a, a separate part of the story. I'm going to jump forward now. And when they do, and it's embodied, you have suffering. See, the glory of God is on display in all sorts of ways. It's on display in the beauty of the earth, isn't it? God's glory is on display in the love that you've experienced in your family or this community here. It's on display in mercy. But the white-hot center of God's glory is on display when God's mercy and justice meet. What Moses is saying is, let the nations wonder. Let them grapple with the mystery as they look at us. Let them see your glory, O Lord, among us. Character that's described in God here is justice. Just be, justice being held together in perfect mercy. This produces life in God's people. It builds trust. It builds relationship. It restores relationship because we've experienced forgiveness. Just this last uh, Friday night, I was with an Iranian woman who was, um, her husband was, was a pastor of a church. They had just recently got married and they had seen fellowship in the church. She said, when I saw the fellowship, when I saw demon-possessed people being healed, when I saw saints sacrificing to give one to another, she says, I knew that this gospel is true. I said, tell me, tell me how you knew, it, you, what, what about it? She said, 
when I saw people sacrificing one for another. That's how I knew this gospel really changed lives. Now, if I take this glory and I could get it from this fear of light, remember, as it passed through the cleft is that Moses was tucked in. And I could transform that glory into words, I'd have the Lord's name. Right? You following me? Okay, what happens if we take it another step and we could take this glory and put it into a human body? What would we have? We'd have Jesus. And that's why the gospel stories don't just tell us some sort of ideal, but they show us the story of a person as he's living and walking with people. And so let me ask you, what's your favorite story? I might spare you and just keep that rhetorical, but I'll tell you if you, I'll spare you. Was it when he touched the leper and he was healed? His skin became like a baby's skin. Or do you remember the story of the, of the woman who, who was unclean for years and came up behind him and just touched him? She got her healing, and then she tried to hide away. But he wouldn't let her hide. He drew out her faith, and a relationship was built. Doesn't that give you joy? How about the story of Jesus' affection for the children? Do you remember how he blessed them? Or do you remember on the, the road from Jericho? There were two blind men on the side of the road. They said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He kept going. The crowds kept going, and they cried out all the more. The disciples just tried to shush him up. Jesus, though, stopped, turned, walked over to them, and asked, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I suspect Jesus' answer what do you need me to do for you, was different from their answer. The blind men said, we want our sight. Jesus met their need. I think that's a beautiful story. He listens to the needs of people. He, he recognizes when he lets them determine their need. And that's powerful in relationship. How about the story of the four friends? You remember that story? Jesus had been on the, the, the countryside teaching about the kingdom and healing all kinds of diseases and the rumors. Stories passed across the countryside. When he came home, a huge crowd had gathered to hear him teach. And he, as he was teaching, there was no space in the whole room, not even at the door. And four friends needed their, their, their paralytic friend to be healed. Finding there was no way in through the crowd, they just went up to the roof. They peeled back the roof and they dropped their friend down. Jesus looking up, seeing the faith of the friends, looked at the paralytic and said, your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees sitting at the front row thought to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? This is blasphemy. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, which is easier to do? Say, your sins are forgiven or rise, stand up, take up your mat and go home. The answer was, for everyone else in the room, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But for Jesus, it's easier to say, rise, stand up, take your mat and go home. Why? Because he actually has the power to redeem 
he actually heals a person. He said, so you may know. He spoke to the man, rise, take up your mat and go home. And the man stood up, took up his mat, leaped for joy and danced as he went out. And the crowds looked at what was happening in amazement. Like, doesn't that captivate? That is beautiful glory. But let me tell you where that white hot center glory is. It's when the, the Lord of hosts, the Lord with a thousand angelic armies, stays on that cross pierced because he loves us. Because that's the only way for us to be redeemed. Now that's the glory. That's where the character of God is on full display in this fallen, broken world. It's an embodied suffering. And so that's why Paul, through his epistle, can describe suffering and glory as though they're always together, two sides of the same coin. We believe that God's mission is essentially that as people see the beauty of God's character, they would become like him. Isn't that your experience? Haven't you seen that? The scriptures and their prophecies that people from every tribe and nation would hear these stories of Jesus, that they would experience life in the community, that they would see your story in your nook or cranny, and that they would come to know Christ, and they would be transformed. Our greatest acts of mission will lead us to the clearest moments of worship. Why? Because it's in this mission, and specifically in the suffering that comes with it, that God's glory is on display. Paul, that great missionary, wrote that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did you catch that? He wants to know even his sufferings. He says it even more triumphantly in Colossians chapter 1. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now to a reformed community, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Reformed community knows. It's the same story. It's not that there's any lack. It's complete. It's accomplished. It's the retelling of it unto the ingathering of the nations, the peoples that... Paul's talking about. Maybe a better known verse is Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's why the Gospel of Luke says, the Christ must suffer because it's in the suffering that the tenacious love of God for sinners is on display. It's where mercy and justice meet. Which is the cross? Is it an act of God's justice or is it an act of God's mercy? Well, the answer for the Christian is both. You can't separate them. And that's exactly why the glory of Christ, the glory of the living God, is most preeminently displayed in the cross. That's why we sacrifice and serve for one another. 
It's also why we view the church as a missionary outpost. It's not a comfort zone or a, some sort of club. It's a missionary outpost. We show God's glory. Right here, Chesterfield, like you all are this witness of Christ. I heard your chatter earlier. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. In the providence of God, we have people in our life who need to know the gospel. And your call is to remember these stories, to be captivated by them. Let them be beautiful. And to be present, present enough to live lovingly, mercifully, and as well, caring enough to speak the truth. The word in Acts is witness. See, that's our role in all of this, is the witness. But it's no insignificant thing. It goes tandem with what we read in God's declaration of his justice. Our witness is our simple expression, the Lord is like this. The Lord is coming back. The Lord doesn't approve of these things. And at the same time, we're present. We're caring. We're displaying his mercy. The challenge for us as saints is that that's a vulnerable place to be. You see, to speak the truth and at the same time be with someone, it's a lot easier to speak the truth and then run away. <laughs> right? But what we're called to is to speak the truth, to witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then to be present, to love, to express that, that forgiveness and grace. Many scholars have wondered how the church grew so quickly in the early ages. Simple answer that they are coming up with is that the Christians displayed the glory of Christ. One of the ways the Christians witnessed to Christ is they suffered alongside others who were suffering. So, for example, in the 4th century, so think Constantine and post-Constantine, a plague hit Caesarea like a wave. Early century urban centers could describe the ministry of Christians like this. All day long, some of them, that is the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered from all parts of the city. A multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. In the second secretary document, you have another letter by Diognetius. This is an outsider's perspective on the Christian community. It's not a Christian, okay? He's a Roman officer. He says, They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws. They yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them, condemned, because they are not understood. They are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Defense, deference is their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even then they rejoice. 
as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. I'll tell you the reason for this hatred. Because it has something to do with death. See, central to our story is this cross. And I'll tell you not only the reason for their hatred, but why the Christians could have endurance and joy through it is because they realize this is where the glory of God is. And they were sustained in it. Stories can call us to look again at Jesus, and in so doing, we will be changed. And because of this, we don't look around the cross. We don't look beyond the cross just to hope in heaven. But our journey is one into the cross. That's why the mystery is the mystery. Because it gives us signposts along the way as we ask the question again and again and again, how can a holy God live among an unholy people and the people not be consumed? That's what we're experiencing here as a community. And we can marvel in that moment. Finding the call to live faithful lives, story faithful lives, finding the strength to live missionally in this world. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for wisdom, strength, power from your spirit. Wisdom to see this math that you have set before us. How is it that your glory can have something to do with suffering? And I pray, Lord, strength, that we would be able to Enter into this journey and see. Coach us in the way by helping us to ask again and again in the most unexpected times, in the times where we would run away from our suffering. Help us to ask, oh Lord, who are you in this moment? How can you be known? And then, Lord, I pray, allow us to live faithfully to your story. We ask all this for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.